party is over, uh, Canada's interest rates are are rising because of all the borrowing that we've done. Uh, the government is now feeling the pinch. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, would it shock you to learn that our Canadian government has spent almost uh, a trillion dollars over the past 30 years to improve the situation of Indigenous peoples in our country, but that, that there, by any metric that has not occurred? That, that has not improved the lives of Indigenous people in our country. Would it shock you to learn that large tracts of land in provinces like New Brunswick and British Columbia are about to be ceded to Indigenous uh, peoples under something called UNDRIP? Well, if you're shocked by those things, and I am, then you're probably wondering how we got here. Uh, how did this happen? Why is this happening? And are there any solutions? Well, uh, today on the program, we have an acclaimed Canadian scholar who is able to answer some of these questions because he's been writing about this for a long time and actually warning us about uh, that, that this would happen for many, many years. And his name is Professor Thomas Flanagan. Thanks for being with us today, Professor. Hi, my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. Uh, so before we dive in, I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction of him. Uh, but as we always do, we're, we've got some framing quotations, which uh, are somewhat in, in, in his honor uh, to reflect some of the things that he's done. Uh, the first one is from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, who said, uh, we have no history of colonialism. So we have all of the things that many people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten or bother them. That's a rather different narrative than what we're hearing from our current federal government. Next, from Preston Manning, uh, who's also someone that our guest knows very well, who said that there are hundreds of Canadian communities that have given more thought to hiring their rink manager than they have to electing their member of parliament. And finally, from a quotation that uh, I note is uh, in a preface to one of our guest's books, this is from uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house, there I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. So who do we have on the show today? Well, Professor Thomas Flanagan, uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Distinguished Fellow, School of Policy uh, from the University of Calgary. Uh, he's also a Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute. Uh, he's uh, also a Senior Fellow of the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And I must thank them for uh, connecting us with uh, such a great guest. Uh, he's also uh, been uh, uh, at, the, at the University of Calgary, was its chair of Aboriginal Futures. Uh, he, he received his BA from uh, Notre Dame and his MA and PhD from Duke University. He taught political science at the University of Calgary from 1968 until his retirement 10 years ago. He's the author of many books and articles that we're going to talk about today on topics such as Lure Riel and Métis history, Aboriginal rights and land claims, uh, Canadian political parties, political campaigning, which he knows a lot about, uh, and applications of game theory to politics. He wrote a book about that. 
Uh, his books have won six prizes, including the Donner Canadian Prize for Best Book of the Year in Canadian Public Policy. He was elected to the Royal Society of Canada in 1996, which is, is a very, very prestigious award. Uh, and uh, Professor Flanagan has also been a frequent legal expert in litigation cases and uh, in Canadian um, jurisprudence. And in the political realm, uh, he managed Stephen Harper's campaigns for leadership of the Canadian Alliance and the Conservative Party of Canada. And in 2004, uh, the, the Conservative National Campaign. And in 2012, uh, helped um, Daniel Smith become the Wild Rose Alberta uh, leader. Welcome to the show, Professor Flanagan. Uh, I want to I start off with a piece that you wrote uh, a few months ago uh, that's, uh, that was published in the Fraser Institute website entitled Canadian Taxpayers Not Being Consulted About Massive Reparations in First Nations uh, People. And you point out rightly this reparations is something that's very much in vogue, it seems, in the United States and Canada. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that piece and, and sort of why this is happening. Because as you rightly point out, Canadians really are not being consulted about this process, which seems to be of very, very, very great importance to, to all of us. Yeah. Well, I call it reparations by stealth. Uh, the word reparations is not used very much in Canada, but in fact, uh, we we have a very expensive program of, of reparations, which is it's happening through the courts and through the judicial process. It started with uh, compensation for uh, so-called survivors of residential schools, which was uh, the deal was uh, negotiated between Paul Martin's government and um, Phil Fontaine, who at that time was uh, uh, national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And just before Martin's government fell in 2005, they, they signed off uh, on the deal. Harper inherited it when he won the next election. And so he decided to carry through with it. Um, I think he thought that this would put an end to, uh, uh, to the claims based on the attendance at schools. But in fact, it was, it was just the beginning. About $5 billion was given to the, uh, to, to the survivors. Um, <clears throat> seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but uh, it, it unleashed a, uh, an avalanche of other claims for, um, well, first of all, for other types of schooling. Uh, most Indian kids never went to residential school in spite of all the emphasis on residential school. Uh, the most common form of education was day schools uh, for on Indian reserves. And then there was a substantial number who went to public school uh, in town. And there was another large number who didn't go to school at all. So uh, these other categories started launching claims for compensation, day school attendees or those who went to public schools in town. I mean, th this is kind of crazy in a way because residential schools were said to be uniquely evil because they separated the child from his parents and community. Whereas a day school, uh, you know, kids went home to their family at night and attending public schools, that was a choice that the parents made. They lived in a boarding um, facility of some kind in town, uh, but they weren't in a congregate dormitory type of setting. Anyway, um, the liberal government rolled over on all of these claims and agreed to pay substantial compensation. But then it got outside education. So then there are claims for um, people who were patients in the Indian hospitals. These no longer exist, but we had about 35 of them in the right. past. 
this was pre-Medicare when uh, the federal government was still responsible for whatever medical care Indians might get. Uh, they set up a separate uh, chain of hospitals, uh, particularly to treat tuberculosis. Well, anyway, there were claims that there was abuse in the hospitals or that the care was substandard. So that one is still, it's going to be paid, but it's, they're still working out the details. Then there was a, a claim based on um, water, uh, failure to provide drinkable water. Uh, that's going to cost the country several billion dollars. And then the the, uh, <laughs> the grandfather of all claims for um Oh, I forgot the 60 scoop as I'm going along. Uh, see, the, the residential schools functioned as orphanages in, in effect. So the government started shutting down residential schools gradually in the 1950s, leaving lots of Indian kids uh, that would have gone there, orphans. Uh, you know, where were they going to go? Well, that led to the uh, provinces took over the responsibility. They started adopting out sending these kids outside their reserves because there were never enough adoptive parents that they could find within the communities. Um, so anyway, kids who were adopted out or have been compensated. And then, but the big one, uh, bigger than all the others put together is the foster care. Right. Um, well, they stopped adopting out, but they still have the problem. What do you do with these uh, orphans or neglected or abused children? Um so uh, the federal government took over responsibility, uh, but you know things allegedly got worse rather than better. So there was a, a claim based on uh, the fact that the federal government's uh, program for caring for foster children, uh, putting them in foster care, was uh, not fa not funded as um, as generously as provincial programs. This started as a, a human rights claim, but was later bolstered with a class action. Anyway, the uh, the liberals rolled on that one. They brought in Murray Sinclair to <laughs> help negotiate the final settlement. And they ended up with a figure of $23 billion in compensation for not only for the children, but for the parents or grandparents of these children. So you know, the people that were abusing the children are also being compensated. I mean, I mean, go figure. Right. And then in addition to that, there's a promise to spend an additional $20 billion to make foster care better. You know, we'll see. Uh, usually anything the federal government touches gets worse rather than better, but that's the promise. So the, the amounts of money are, are huge and there are still other cases in the pipeline. Um, course you're a lawyer Leighton uh, I mean th th this is a huge profit center for some law firms is these class actions right. because the settlement inevitably includes payment of legal fees right. which can run in, run into the millions um, so uh, now what we're going to see in the future is class actions which um, demand not compensation for individuals which has been the main theme up till now is compensation for individuals who allegedly suffered some harm but it's going to be uh, compensation for aggregations, like compensation for bands or for entire tribes or whatever right. the aggregation may be. Right. Some of these are coming along now. Uh, like, for example, residential schools are said to have harmed not only the people who attended them, but uh, the communities from which those children were drawn. Right. 
So now we're going to get class actions to compensate communities for the harm that they suffered as, as collectivities. Anyway, uh, all of this has happened without uh, prior authorization from parliament. It's being fed particularly by uh, the practice directive of Jody Wilson-Raybould when she was minister of justice, who told the lawyers in the uh, Department of Justice, uh, make every possible effort to settle without litigation, you know, not, in other words, a negotiated settlement. Yeah. And that, that directive is still in effect, isn't still it? Still in effect. Yeah, it's yeah. still there and they're still doing it. Now, possibly a new government, if we ever get a different party in power, maybe they can rescind that directive, but it's still in effect. Well, anyway, right. so I've worked with these lawyers from the Department of Justice, and these guys can play hardball when they want to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they will drag They certainly did over COVID, I can tell you. For, for decades. Yeah. But uh, they've been directed politically uh, not to do their job, just to seek yeah. a settlement. And, and so – it's, it's getting uh, crazier and crazier. The amounts of money are huge and growing and the public don't know, you know, they see, may see a headline on the news that justice is finally being done, but they don't realize the whole picture that there's a whole, this has become an industry. Right. It's driven by class action law firms and uh, um, they go out and they round up the clients and, you know, they go through, get the case certified and knowing that the, under this government, they'll be able to negotiate a settlement and the settlement will include uh, uh, legal fees. Right. So I call it reparations by stealth. You've, uh, and you've also written uh, in a piece that you, uh, that you published in April that um, these, 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 uh, these, these claims, these programs are also significantly driving up federal deficits. Well, of course, uh, you know, ever since the liberals were elected in 2015, we haven't had a balanced budget. So that means that any incremental money uh, has to be borrowed. You know, it's not like there's a pot of money sitting there to be distributed to First Nations that uh, uh, bring a class action. Uh, basically, the government has to borrow the money or print the money uh, and create it. I mean, there's different ways of calculating it, but I overall commitment up to this point for these class actions is about $60 billion. And this is all um, has to be new money that we is not is not supported by tax revenue. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's been borrowed. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not done yet by any means. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of these cases uh, have been settled in principle, but it often takes years to find all the members of the class and to compensate them. Right. So a lot of this money hasn't yet, it's promised, but it's not yet been paid. Right. Um, this has actually expanded out into uh, the whole sort of social justice program, though, hasn't it? There's this massive sort of guilt trip that's being uh, perpetrated against, uh, the, you know, the rest of, of Canada, uh, which has finds its expression in things like the whole Kamloops situation. And of course, uh, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Day, uh, all this stuff that seems to be almost an importation of uh, race guilt from the United States uh, under the under the sort of the the aegis of of critical race theory. Yes. Well, my question for you, Professor, is what do you think the end game is? Uh, why is this uh, Why is this being uh, uh, so 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 em so much emphasized by our current liberal government? Is it part of the whole uh, you know progressive agenda that they seem to be pushing on Canadians? Uh, yeah, uh, it, it is. Um, it's, it's a part of the progressive or woke ideology, according to which 
uh, all minority groups are oppressed by white males. And this has been working its way now through our public life for probably, you know, almost 50 years. I guess it uh, started with feminism, uh, environmentalism, um, minority identity politics, uh, most recently attacks upon biology, assertion of, uh, of rights of sexual minorities transsexuals and so forth. The true believers are kind of systematically working through all areas of life, looking for victims. In Canada, um, Native people are a prime candidate for, for victim status. Uh, we don't, in, in the United States, it's more African-Americans. Well, we have African-Canadians, but proportionally, we, we don't have the numbers that they do in the United States. So in, in Canada, it's been more um, Native people on, and uh, it, it's it's hard to talk about it because you're not supposed to use the word Indian anymore. So everybody uses the word <laughs> indigenous, but that's um, we still have doing, the Indi we still have the Indian Act though on the books. I know, yeah, <laughs> and, and the word Indian is used in the Constitution of Canada and in legislation and right. so forth. Um, so people all use these uh, the terminology. It's often hard to pin down. They may not even know for sure what they're talking about. Like talking about residential schools. Um, there's a class action coming along to compensate Métis who attended residential schools. Well, they weren't even supposed to go to residential schools. They were uh, residential schools were only for Indians right. legally. Some Métis were taken in uh, or br brought into the schools on sort of an act of generosity on the part of those who were running them, but uh, they weren't supposed to be there. And they certainly were only there because their parents wanted them there. Mm -hmm. uh, but now they want compensation too. Mm -hmm. So, but, but a lot of the coverage of it talks about the, all the indigenous people who went to residential schools, but they were Indian residential schools. So it gets broader and broader looking for, excuse me, looking for more victims to, uh, to be compensated. Um, and the price tag is getting very, very high. It, it, it's not just that, uh, it's not just the class actions and the reparations, that, but the um, Trudeau government has also uh, pushed the Indian Affairs budget uh, to record highs. I call it Indian Affairs. It's right. the old Indian Affairs Department was divided sure. into two different departments. But the budget of those two departments together is now bigger. It's greater than what we spend on national defense. Mm -hmm. um, and it's expanding every year, partly due to payouts for these for these social justice claims, but partly just due to enhancement of programming right. um, and bringing in new categories. So now we have programs for Métis people in what used to be Indian Affairs. So serving more people, paying out more money, spending more every year. Uh, well, now you have a authorities like David Dodge in the financial area say the party is over. Uh, Canada's interest rates are are rising uh, because of all the borrowing that we've done. Uh, the government is now feeling the pinch in having to pay out, what is it, the most recent figure of 40 billion a year or something in interest payments, uh, and it'll be rising. Uh, so, I, you know, nothing goes on forever. These, I think we're reaching some kind of limit uh, of practicality. Right. Uh, but for a long time, it, it seemed to be affordable because you could keep borrowing the money. And so you didn't have the immediate pain.
but now the pain is becoming immediate. And I think that's one of the factors that's driving the what's happened in the polls, um, public opinion polls, uh, with the uh, conservatives moving forward, the liberals dropping right. back. It's a chickens coming home to roost. The practical effects of programs could be postponed and hidden for a while, but you can't do that forever. They do eventually does eventually become manifest. Mm-hmm. Part of what this expansion of programming is in response to the courts taking an activist uh, approach to treaty interpretation, though, too, isn't it? Yes. Uh, for example, uh, there was a time, and you know this very well, better than, than most, when Métis were not considered to have the same uh, necessarily constitutional rights or treaty rights as First Nations peoples, as they're called now. But the courts have now have sort of brought them into the party, haven't they? And so the courts have a very activist role. Uh, and they they seem to be supporting all every, everything that the federal government is saying. Um, how how is uh, how is that unfolding? Well, yeah, this is a, again a huge factor. Um, it has to do probably with legal education in Canada that the legal law schools were t- taken over at an early date by adherents of the woke ideology or progressivism, and that's what's being taught in the schools. And so you get generations of lawyers coming out believing this stuff and then they get appointed to the bench as uh, as judges um and uh, so yeah a couple of the landmarks here uh reinterpretation of section 35 of the constitution act of 1982 to uh, require that uh, create a duty of consultation and accommodation um it starts with uh in british columbia where there were no treaties uh, most of the province. It actually makes some sense if you have a potential uh, Aboriginal rights claim, which has never been dealt with. Uh, is it fair for the government to allow, a, a, let's, let's say, a logging company to come in and cut all the timber, which uh, degrades the value of your of your land, or maybe it's not your land exactly, but land on which you may have a claim? So I could see the original decision, but then the courts expanded it into Alberta where treaties already exist. The, so now we have the duty of uh, consultation, even where land has been ceded under treaty. Um, First Nations are still claiming the right to be consulted on so-called traditional lands, which the concept very poorly defined, what is t- traditional territory? Um, could be almost anywhere. So uh, yeah, this is this is all judge-made law. Uh, then you mentioned the Métis, well, the Daniels decision. Uh, I was originally hired as a historical consultant in Daniels. Uh, I usually, I have always my own worst enemy. They they had a, <laughs> a an all-female all team from the Department of Justice. So I went up to see them in Edmonton. I walked in. I said, gee, I'd never played in a girl's band before. <laughs> anyway, they I wrote a report for them, but they, they decided that they didn't want me to testify. And of course, they lost the case. So the result is that the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, declared Métis to be Indians. Yeah. Uh, you know, insane historically. I mean, I had reams of evidence that I'd collected showing how, from the beginning, Métis were always considered to be different from Indians. But anyway, they, in their wisdom, they decided they didn't need me as a as a witness on the case. So. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's court decisions almost every day. Now there's a new one from British Columbia saying that UNDRIP requires consultation right. with local Indians. 
before you can have uh, not not open a mine, but just establish a mining claim. It was already understood that you'd have to have consultation before you opened the mine. But even now, even to get the claim, uh, you're going to have to consult first. So it adds another layer of consultation. Time is money. It means that, you know, fewer and fewer claims will ever be filed because it's going to take longer and longer mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Again, all totally, totally judge-made law, uh, in, in this case, in the interpretation of UNDRIP. UNDRIP doesn't state anything like that. So it's judges' views about what UNDRIP implies in in the net result though it doesn't seem to be improving the station uh of first nations peoples in terms of health or wealth or education or any other metric and in fact you've been warning about this for some time you published a book in 2008 called first nation second thoughts uh where you 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 started to question uh some of these policies uh really before you know in a way that was sort of somewhat prescient and you've written about this recently where you're saying that actually there is another way, there are better ways to improve the station of First Nations peoples and communities in our country instead of just, you know, writing them government checks. And one of them you talk about is entrepreneurship. You want to talk about that a little bit, one of your solutions to the problem? Yeah. Um, l- let me just back up and say there, uh, the, the one group that we can measure fairly well is First Nations people living on reserve because a a metric has been established. um, The index of, it's an index of standard of living on reserve and it's been going up uh, gradually as it has for the rest of Canada. You can compute the index for the rest of Canada too. And as we become a wealthier nation, the index is going up. But on reserves, it's not going up any faster than in the rest of the country, even though the spending has has been multiplied right so the the standard of living seems to be independent of these increases in spending so when i saw that i said well gee whiz what's uh what is there that works so i started looking at um first nations that uh whose standard of living has been increasing disproportionately uh and what do they have in common and there are some there's quite a few. There's dozens who've been doing very well. And what they had in common was uh, entrepreneurship, participation in the Canadian economy. Um, broadly speaking, there's there's two types. One is um, those who have a, uh, a reserve that's close to a metropolitan area, and they take advantage of that. Uh, if you're close to Vancouver or Calgary, there are all kinds of economic opportunities there. And so there's some good news stories there or the other the other type is natural resource development if you happen to be situated in an oil field or near some kind of mining play so i did a couple of case studies one is the fort mckay and their far-sighted chief uh said hey we've got to start getting in on the action and it wasn't producing oil for this uh particular first nation it was uh, creating service companies, um, well site maintenance, uh, workforce logic, things like that. And the, well, their curve just went up like that. It's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, and you walk around that community today, it looks like a suburb of Edmonton, uh, not like a typical Indian reserve. The other case study I did was uh, Westbank First Nation in uh, British Columbia on the uh, shores of Okanagan Lake. Huge real estate boom there. 
So it's very, very different from Fort Mackay, a different approach to prosperity. But the common denominator is seeing the opportunity and taking advantage of it and doing what needs to be done to marketize the value of their land. They, they found a way around Indian Act definition of land rights so that they could um, uh, create long-term leases for developers or for, for home builders. And uh, it's been a huge source of revenue that comes to them through property tax on development, development fees, or just having people there who uh, want to do business because now they're living there. Um, and there are other, a lot of other good news stories around the country. So I've studied a few in detail, or I've written a kind of in generality about it. And, uh, you know, I wish we'd spend more, more time studying success and less time trying to study failure. I mean, you have to do both, but we, we need to uh, spend more time studying uh, the success. Uh, another common factor is the, these First Nations uh, who have succeeded. Uh, they've done it themselves. They didn't go to the government and say, hey, we need special grant to do this. They said, hey, we've got to get in business. Sometimes they had to fight the government to get around rules, which were preventing them from getting into business. I want to ask you about um, the the involvement of uh, NGOs in this sort of arena. There's a, a gentleman I know who's been on our program named, named Dale Swampy. He's been involved in oil and gas projects uh, and, and uh, has been very frustrated in that vein because most of the oil and gas uh, pipeline projects that have been killed over the past 10 years or so by the Liberal government, uh, Dale's been trying to make happen because he knows that, uh, that entrepreneurially, in the way that you've described, those projects do a lot of good uh, for First Nations communities. His frustration is that um, the perception of the Canadian populace generally is that First Nations uh, communities and leaders don't want these projects to happen. But the truth that he told me on this show was that in fact, it's these these NGOs, these non-governmental environmental organizations oftentimes are are hired from outside the country uh, and oftentimes they hire people off reserve for the day to go out and, and protest uh, and that this false impression is being given to Canadians and that in fact, um, this entrepreneurship, which could be a, a huge key to unlock the potential that you describe uh, uh, for First Nations communities and and for peoples generally, is actually being destroyed by these NGOs. Do you, are you able to comment on that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with Dale Swampy's uh, conclusions there. It's not a topic I've studied in detail myself. Yeah. So I haven't tried to track the money coming into Canada um, and tried to uh, trace all the links between these organizations. But I, I, I'm sure it's true. I mean, it, yeah. it's obviously true that um, – these people are using the Indians as pawns, really. Yeah. Their goals are different. They're trying to block the development of oil and gas. Uh, so they will uh, pay Indians to uh, act as, you know, block it in various ways, demonstrations, protests, whatever they can do. But the the, the, the process is is being destabilized by, by these outside forces whose goals really is nothing to do with the welfare of indigenous people. Or the democratic majority of indigenous people, it is uh, uh, it's another goal completely. One of the pieces that you published in on the Fraser Institute was uh, First Nations in the Petroleum Industry from Conflict to Co Cooperation. And what I read there is that uh, you you basically agree with Dale Swampy 
that uh, you know the the petroleum industry is a big key that could unlock the potential for First Nations communities in terms of developing real sustainable uh, wealth and and health and safe communities. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I tried to quantify the the benefits uh, of these cooperation agreements um, for pipelines in British Columbia. And I, do, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. I did this work a couple of years ago, but right. the, the benefits are huge. Uh, you get upfront cash payments. You get uh, job creation during the building. You get long-term uh, job creation for maintenance. You get uh, contracting out to uh, to local firms. You get continued revenue from property tax on the uh, transit. Um, even get it, uh, in some cases more and more. You'll get an equity stake, so you get a share of revenues um these are these are huge benefits and it's not surprising that the communities have voted to accept them um you see industry can accommodate itself to just about anything the um, creation of the right to be consulted i think was was legally dubious but uh, once it's there it's kind of like i call it a quasi property right it's it's not exactly ownership of the land but it's a right almost a veto power uh, over use of the land, not quite maybe, but close. So companies say, well, okay, we have to deal, we have a new kind of property owner here. We'll deal with that. Uh, companies are used to dealing with property owners and uh, they do their calculations and they see what they can afford to pay. Um, so it's hugely beneficial uh, if we never get these pipelines actually flowing, if we right. can get the oil and gas flowing in them. Right. Uh, it seems like there's one delay after another. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, that, I mean, there's an example of how these NGOs, which have tried to block these pipelines, they don't give a damn about the people um, who are going to benefit enormously from the pipeline. They just want to block the 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 pipeline mm -hmm. um, yeah, because of hatred of oil and gas. So here's the multi-billion dollar question. You talked about how uh, our government and by extension Canadians are being driven into incredible debt through this largesse, this constant, these constant payments to Indigenous communities. Uh, offset by that is the huge potential uh, to 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 prevent all this borrowing by creation of or or development of of new projects that would create the wealth and revenue that could be enjoyed by Indigenous communities. Why is this federal government not signing on to this incredibly obvious solution? Yeah, no, it is. It is obvious to anybody with half a brain uh, as to what would work and what doesn't work in this field. But it's ideology. People believe human beings have an enormous capacity to believe things which are manifestly untrue. Um, so where we are now in, in our politics, I think that, as I said earlier, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost. We're see, starting to see real-world empirical results of uh, eight years of progressivism in power. So people are becoming aware of the breakdown, and I think it's going to lead to some some political change in Canada. At least I hope so. Uh, but the but but the people in power for the last eight years have been driven mainly by this this uh, this vision rather than by empirically testable uh, uh, ideas about how you would actually uh, legislate. Right. The The problem that I see with the progressivism is that it's uh, it's an ideology that eats itself. I mean, you, you never stop. You, you, there, there's no end to progressing. Uh, 
and uh, and so it, it seems to sort of drive into nihilism. Um, but talking about this progressive mob, uh, it's easy to p- sort of put this <laughs> label on the liberals. But uh, you know, you've been watching the uh, political scene for a very long time and writing about it. You've been involved in it at the you know at the highest levels in terms of running campaigns provincially and federally. Um, to a lot of Canadians right now, it looks as though we've got a uniparty in Ottawa. Yet, yes, we have a very, very, I would say, ineffective is the kindest word we can say about our, our federal government. But I, I would say we probably have, uh, I, I, I think the, the Conservative Party could wear T-shirts uh, that, that would have the acronym WOE, that's worst opposition ever on them, very justifiably. They, they really have been terrible. I mean, the, the work that, uh, for example, Stephen Harper did when he was leader of the opposition in Parliament, is not being performed right now by the Conservatives. Um, so what is going on in Ottawa? Why does it look so much different than it did perhaps, you know, uh, you know, 15 years ago? Well, I know what you mean. And, uh, you know, just to take one example, um, uh, the uh, motion resolution passed in the House of Commons declaring that the uh, uh, Indian residential schools were a right. form of gen- genocide yeah. was endorsed unanimously Right. Now, it's actually not everybody got up and voted yes, but it, they have a, a process kind of waving it through on the nod. And the, the Conservative Party decided not to oppose it, which is then reported as being unanimous endorsement. So I talked to some of the Conservatives afterwards and what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? And they said, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just words. It's not legislation. Um, uh, but it's more than words. You know, this this vote now gets endlessly cited in the press. And so people are now being taught in the schools and hearing elsewhere that this candidate is actually guilty of genocide, right. uh, which, which is absurd. But the conservatives voted for it uh, based on a kind of political pragmatism, I guess. I mean, I wasn't there for the discussions, but they guess they thought this was the simplest way to, to get that through and, to, and move on to something else. So, yeah, you've got to have a principled – a principled opposition, and I mean, I haven't given up hope altogether, but it, it can be discouraging. Yeah. What one of the, the things that concerned me very much, uh, which actually found its way into legislation, was the way that uh, terms like cisgender were incorporated into our criminal code, uh, in, in when in terms of, of of actually criminalizing things like conversion therapy. Uh, I, it's hard to imagine anything less conservative in a Roger Scruton sense than, than, you know, things like that. And so I just wonder when I look at the conservative party and I mean, no disrespect to someone like yeah. Pierre Polivier, but when I look at actual, actually look behind the, the leader and actually look at the, the policies of the two main parties, it sort of looks like cola wars to me. There's not a lot to call there. Am yeah. I getting it wrong or what's your take on that? Well, well you're, you're right, but let me, let me give you a peek behind the scenes. Because I've been there and been involved. I know. In, I know. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to face the fact that um, in Canada, the left wing, the Liberals and the NDP, uh, have much greater leverage in the media, uh, right, than yeah. Conservatives do. I won't say they control it totally, but they certainly have uh, uh, greater influence in the media. Yeah. So. You need what uh, John Howard of Australia called a, a small target strategy for right. campaigning. You can't necessarily take a position on everything that exposes you 
to attacks because you, you, you can count on those attacks being amplified in the media. You have to pick your battles. Yeah, but I'd like to say I'm a conservative, so I'm never, I'm never optimistic, but I'm always hopeful. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, am, I am hopeful that a different government led by Pierre or whoever it might be yeah. will, will roll back. I mean, starting, for example, with Jody Wilson, Raybould's practice directive, which has allowed class action lawyers to uh, uh, fleece people of Canada for tens of billions of dollars. I, I think you could actually put a halt to that, uh, maybe not completely, but you could certainly slow it down. And that's something that a new justice minister could do. It's right. not legislation. Yeah. Uh, so I see, you know, I see room for constructive changes and I, I hope that they will take place. Well, speaking of hope and constructive changes, uh, you and uh, Jack Mintz uh, with uh, Ted Morton wrote a very fascinating book uh, that I read recently, A Moment of Truth, How to Think Alber of, of Alberta's Future. And uh, this book uh, was written some years ago, but it's, uh, it's certainly very relevant at the moment because of what's going on in terms of the, let's call it the, the sovereignty uh, debate that's going on as between Alberta, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ottawa which as you know, has been going on for a very long time. But in that book, um, you lay out the case historically uh, very well in, in terms of this moment of truth. Um, do you think that, that that moment of truth has arrived for, for the province of Alberta? Well, it's more than a moment. Actually, the term moment of truth was chosen by the publisher. Uh, <laughs> we, we didn't... Uh... Uh, come up with that phrase, but he thought the book would sell better if it had this sort of apocalyptic title, <laughs> Moment of Truth. So, you know, uh, titles, that's the publisher's prerogative in my view. It's a marketing decision. Um, but we are at a, a, a really important, not moment, but a really important stretch of time right. in which the future of Alberta is at stake because we are, we're not exactly a single industry province, but there's no question that oil and gas is our by far our most important industry now. And the federal government is very hostile to it. And some in the federal government would like to shut it down altogether. Others just want to trim it back. Um, and we have to keep resisting that. And Danielle is, uh, has come up, she and advisors come up with something that we hadn't thought of in our book, uh, but uh, the Sovereignty Act. Now, originally the Sovereignty Act, in my view, was a non-starter. There was no way that you would ever be able to get that through the courts when it came to a test. But the revised version of the Sovereignty Act just is allows the provincial government to instruct provincial agencies to ignore um, federal legislation, which seems to go outside the constitutional authority of the federal government. Mm -hmm. I think that's at least uh, um, viable as a, uh, something that you could defend in court. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough struggle. There's no question about it. One of the other things that uh, you've written about a lot, and, and actually uh, uh, I found that your book was quite prescient uh, because it was written in, in 2014, is your book, Persona Non Grata, The Death of Free Speech in the Internet Age. And uh, many of the things that you talk about in the book back then uh, have really come about and really foresaw uh, the impact of things like social media and how uh, uh, not only governments, but these other let's call them private agencies, could be weaponized by government to suppress free speech. And we're seeing this all across the map right now, aren't we? Uh, so I found this book to be quite fascinating and, and really uh, 
almost like a cautionary tale. It, did how, how how were you able to foresee some of these things happening back in 2014? So the cancellation in my case was, I would say, partially effective. I, my platform was uh, probably reduced, was but it wasn't erased totally, and I was able to recover. I was fortunate; a lot of friends stood stood beside me mm-hmm. or behind me. Um, but that got me interested in the whole topic, and that's why I dug into it. it was based on on uh, personal experience, and uh, it is remarkable how somebody's career can be destroyed in almost in an instant, uh, you know, and people, uh, you know, m- much bigger platforms than me. Uh, I was just a mouthy professor, but, uh, you know, there, there are people of enormous achievements, uh, you know, CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies who are suddenly history or um, broadcasters, I mean, actors, yeah, it's it's a phenomenon of our times, and mm-hmm. uh, nobody is immune to it. Uh, no matter how successful you think you are, yeah, uh, <laughs> it doesn't make you uh, immune. These forces will come come at you suddenly, uh, and it can be uh, almost impossible to uh, to withstand. Yeah, that's a wonderful wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading that. Uh, the other book we've mentioned three of your books already: the Moment of Truth. Uh, Second to or First Nations Second Thoughts, and of course, Persona Non Grata, The Death of Free Speech. The other book I wanted to mention, because we've sort of been talking around it, uh, is The Wealth of First Nations, which is a brilliant title, sort of a play on Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. And um, But you talk in that book about a lot of the things that you've mentioned on the program today, about ways that uh, could be utilized, different methods to to actually uh, unleash the, you know, the, the wealth, uh, the, the, the wealth building potential of First Nations in Canada. Uh, Was that the point of writing that book to sort of show another path? Yeah, uh, that book summarizes the research that I've been doing for the uh, Fraser Institute over approximately the last 10 or 12 years, different aspects of uh, property rights on on reserves and measuring the progress or otherwise of of First Nations, um, trends in litigation and, and so forth. So I tried to pull it all together in that book and uh, indicate, excuse me, indicate a path towards success of based on entrepreneurship and participation in the economy. Uh, I call it making rather than taking. Uh, do you know create wealth rather than demand wealth be transferred to you? Right. And there are things government can do to help that now. But of course, everything has a risk. Let's, if I could just talk about one one idea here. <clears throat> it's in the I mentioned that there was a, a column in the National Post today about loan guarantees, and this helps uh, can help First Nations or Métis communities get involved in the economy. And they they've been we have a program uh, in Alberta that Jason created when he was uh, premier, and some of the other provinces have these. And I think they've been I think they've been modestly successful. Uh, there's also a federal loan guarantee program. Um, but what these have in common is that they're they're all relatively small scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one one power station, one one thing that they're, they're not enormous in scope, and the risk is limited. And thus far, uh, they none of them that I'm aware of have backfired in the sense that. Uh, 
the uh, the loan isn't serviced. But loan guarantees can be uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, two words, Muskrat Falls, <laughs> that uh, power project out in Newfoundland. And right. Harper uh, approved that loan guarantee, I think, for political reasons because he was trying to get some votes in Newfoundland. Well, you know, how many billion dollars uh, overrun is there? I, I still don't think they're delivering consistent power. They've tried to start up a couple of times and then they find something isn't working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the worst of all time is the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which oh, ouch. wasn't a loan guarantee, uh, it, it, but it will lead probably to loan guarantees in the future. Right. But it shows what happens when government gets involved in an industrial project on a big scale and uh, the, the uh, potential for cost overruns. So now anyway, because uh, loan guarantees have worked quite well in a certain setting at a certain scale, now we're getting demands to scale it up, to have massive a massive federal program of loan guarantees. Again, in the using trendy terms like uh, close the infrastructure gap, uh, well, I guarantee you that if you start doing federal loan guarantees uh, on a large scale, you know, once once they get into the multi-billions rather than into, a, a, you know, a couple of hundred millions, okay, it can be, it can be monitored. But you get into these huge loan guarantees, I guarantee you're going to have more and more Muskrat Falls type of, of situation. So you can have a good idea, which demonstrably can help First Nations get into um, uh uh, making economic progress and increasing their standard of living and participating in the economy, but uh, government can ruin it uh, because then you see the opportunists come in. They see that this idea has worked, even if they weren't in favor of it in the first place, they see that it's worked. And so they say, let's take advantage of this. Let's get lots more money flowing in. Well, then the grifters take over. Right. So <laughs> anyway, uh, nothing, nothing is ever easy, yeah. but, but there are things government can do and has done. Some governments have done things that uh, are genuinely beneficial in the sense that I think of as beneficial right. of in, encouraging participation in the economy. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I'm paraphrasing a quote from, Dr. Thomas Sowell, who said about government, that one of the worst ideas ever is to give a group of people a lot of power when they then they don't bear responsibility for any of their decisions. Yeah, uh, it's like you, giving whiskey and whiskey and car keys to a teenage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So teenagers. we've talked about some of your books, and uh, just to finish off our reading list. The, by the way, folks, all these books have been added to our reading list. You'll find them all on Amazon. Uh, Professor Flanagan publishes extensively on, on the, at the Fraser Institute and also on the Frontier Center for Public Policy website and elsewhere. Uh, but you'll find his books very easily. I know I did. Uh, but, uh, Tom, are there any other books that, uh, you want to mention to finish off our reading list that you think might be useful to our discussion and, and lead people, uh, uh, to a better understanding of some of the things you've been writing about and talking about? I'll just mention that, uh, um, I have a book coming out in October on uh, on uh, so-called unmarked graves and missing children. It's it's an edited book, pulling together uh, what's been written in the last couple of years, debunking what we call the Kamloops mythology. Right. Um, so people can look for that. It's going to be published by True North, and it will be available on Amazon. Okay. The book I just finished is called uh, Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World. And the author's name is Jeff Finn, 
F-Y-N-N hyphen Paul. He's uh, American by birth. He got his PhD at the University of Toronto uh, in history, taught for a while in the UK, and now teaches at the University of Leiden in, in the Netherlands. And this is a good overview of the uh, contact of, um, of Europeans with uh, the inhabitants of the New World. Uh, so I'd, I'd strongly recommend this. It's has has it doesn't have very much on Canada. It has some on Canada. It has more on the United States and Latin America. But it's a good overview. Uh, I, I like it because it uh, it's not just about one country, but it gives you some overall perspective. Right. right. Okay. Um, then uh, not long ago, I finished uh, reading Thomas Sowell's most recent book, uh, Social Justice Fallacies. Oh yeah. Yeah, I have not uh, read that one yet, but I've read his books. Are he's brilliant? Uh, he really yes, is. Incredible. He really is. And this one, uh, I mean, it's it's all familiar if you're a reader of Soul. Mm-hmm. That you will have encountered these ideas before. But he, he's always fresh in the way he presents it. And he's got new, up to date examples and and so forth. So I think this is a very important uh, book. So that I bought that also on uh, on Amazon, and then. Uh, Christopher Rufo, the, his new book, uh, traces the intellectual development of the woke ideology from its yeah. different um, seminal seminal authors uh, mm-hmm. like Herbert Marcuse or the… Uh, Derrida and Foucault, those guys? Uh, yeah, those yeah. – yeah, uh, yeah. he does a very I, – I learned a lot. I mean I've been studying this stuff for decades, but I, I learned a lot from him yeah. uh, from that book that I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I would recommend that one as well. So Thomas Sowell, Christopher Rufo, and uh, Jeff uh, Finn Paul. Oh, well, th- thank you so much for sharing those with us and with our mm-hmm. viewers and listeners. And also thank you so much for sharing an hour or so of your time with us and uh, your extensive, expansive knowledge of uh, wisdom and experience in the Canadian political scene uh, and historical scene. And uh, we thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to hopefully talking to you again when your new book comes out. And mm-hmm. uh, we wish you much success with that. Thanks for being our very special guest here today on Grey Matter today. Yeah, the tentative title of the new book is, uh, it hasn't been typeset yet, but it's, it's uh, what was it, uh, Kamloops, Kamloops Myths and the Madness of Crowds. <laughs> well, I'm, I, 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 I'm glad to hear the Douglas Murray reference and that you're not leaving this title up to the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> well, we negotiate back and forth, but okay. no, they were they were willing to accept our suggestions. All right. Thank you very much, sir. It's been a pleasure uh, okay. having, this, having this time with you today. 